What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Howdy, folks. Hope everyone's having a good week so far. This case that we have for you today is maybe the wackiest case that we have researched thus far on this show. I'm really, really excited to get into it. There's so many weird elements to it that you might look at it and just think it's, you know, pretty cut and dry, but there's so many layers. And if you have heard this story, I tried to put as much detail as I could in this episode so that you get all the scoop. So hope you guys enjoy this very, very tragic story. Also, if you guys are looking for more episodes, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. We have a bunch of bonus episodes. And for you patrons that are listening right now, uh, we haven't put out a bonus episode yet because we had some technical difficulties, but that will be out shortly for you guys. So stay tuned for that. Yes, Heath found such a crazy case from a country we have not yet delved into on our bonus episode series, nor on Going West. So check that out for this week. And Heath also found a great second bonus episode for June. So patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. Yes, please head over there and subscribe. All right, guys, let's not waste any more time. This is episode 125 of Going West, so let's get into it. In 1999, a young bank teller left work in New Mexico and was never seen again. As her coworkers began investigating her disappearance the following morning, they were confident they knew exactly what happened to her. Between proof of long-standing cons, cannibalistic conspiracy theorists, and mysterious evidence found in her home, This case proves to be one of the most bizarre we've covered. This is the story of Girly Chu Hassenkoft. Girly Chu was born on August 27, 1963, to parents Chingek Wong and Chu Ching Kang near Georgetown in Penang, Malaysia, which is an absolutely beautiful low crime island state. And she also had a sister named June Chu and a brother, Andrew Chu. Girly grew up in her parents' gorgeous home surrounded by loving family members and neighbors, and she just had this wonderful and consistent sense of security. She also grew up very faithful and spent a lot of time in a stunning local cobblestone Chinese temple called the Goddess of Mercy Temple. When she turned 21, she began working as a marketing rep at the Hong Kong Bank in Penang, and throughout her whole 20s, she worked at this bank. As a fluid English speaker, she and her coworker and friend Susan loved visiting the United States. And while Gurley was in her late 20s in the early 1990s, Gurley took a trip to the United States with Susan. And while she was in San Diego, she headed over to SeaWorld and met a man named Diazin Hassenkoft, a surgeon in his mid-20s from Houston, Texas. They hit it off very well and decided to become pen pals so that when Gurley returned to her home in Malaysia, they could continue to get to know each other. But after corresponding by mail back and forth for over a year they decided they wanted to be together for real. So in 1993, they got married and moved to a home in Albuquerque, New Mexico together. In Albuquerque, Gurley began working as a bank teller at Bank of America, where she made great friends with her coworkers and everyone just adored her. And even all the customers loved her because she really cared about her job and cared about making people feel comfortable. And because of all the referrals she would get and her general work performance, She went a lot of trips through work, like to San Francisco and Hawaii, so she was just great at her job. Before Gurley moved to the United States, Diazin wrote Gurley's parents a letter explaining that he was from Zurich, Switzerland, and that he worked for NASA. The letter apologized for not having asked Gurley's father for her hand in marriage, and the rest of the letter basically boasted about how successful and worldly he was. 
He bought Gurley a nearly $8,000 diamond ring and presented it to her when she arrived in late 1992. But over the years, things between them were not good with their relationship, and this was all thanks to Diazen's temper. Diazen was also incredibly unfaithful during their marriage, and in 1996, a Japanese woman in Canada gave birth to a son named Dimitri, and it was Diazen's child. After the boy was born, Dyson took a trip to Mexico and returned home with him, telling his wife Gurley that he was a Mexican orphan and that they were adopting him. Which is insane, because he he just came home and said, here's a kid, we're going to adopt him, and Gurley's like, wait, what? Like, yeah, never like even she, talked about it. Yeah, she had no say in the situation whatsoever. So, there was no conversation like you just said, and it was very matter-of-fact that Dyson brought the boy home, and Gurley had no choice but to accept it but that's just how terrible their marriage was. But Gurley accepted the child as her own and was a wonderful and loving mother to him. But she didn't find out until at least two years later that Dimitri was actually her husband's biological child. Sadly, Gurley was fully aware of Dyson's affairs and she was expected to put up with them. But in 1998, Gurley had a conversation with Dyson's girlfriend about their relationship and the woman ended the affair. Dyson was so upset by this that he ended up choking and threatening to kill his wife Gurley, and he was actually cited for this domestic abuse charge. And there's at least one other report of domestic violence in their relationship. And by the way, this was at the hands of Dyson. Gurley confided in her coworkers about the spousal abuse that she suffered, and they supported her any way that they could. Shortly after discovering that Dimitri was in fact Dyson's son, Gurley found out some more baffling information. Her husband had been lying to her about his lifestyle and profession for years. So when they met, Diazin explained that he was a successful thoracic surgeon, which is someone who specializes in treating lung and esophageal cancer, and that he had multiple degrees from various prestigious universities such as the University of Tokyo and Cornell Medical College. On top of that, he wasn't actually a doctor at all. He had been expelled from medical school many years prior and had falsified his transcripts and had been living as a total con artist. Diazin also claimed he was a geneticist, someone who studies genes, who had leukemia for years and that he was constantly sick. And Gurley and everyone else believed this wholeheartedly because he would even go so far as to cough up blood on occasion. Dyson also told people that he was a former CIA scientist, and over the course of his late 20s and early 30s, he conned over $100,000 from cancer patients by selling them a so-called cancer cure that would also stop the aging process. But in reality, these were just vitamin B6 shots. And to try and sell these injections even further, Dyson claimed that he was actually 2,000 years old. And the only reason he looked so young was because of this cure that he made. And one woman who lived in Santa Fe awarded Dyson with over $300,000 from her trust fund for these treatments before she died. At the time, Gurley had no idea that he was conning so many people. But in 1995, the FBI began to catch on to his schemes. And the reason the FBI became involved was because Dyson tried to purchase a bioreactor, which is an apparatus for growing organisms, and told the company that he was trying to conduct cell growth experiments. But knowing it could be used for dangerous tests, the company alerted the FBI and they started digging into Dyson's background. But he was never arrested for this. Also, his real name wasn't even Dyson Hossenkoft. It was Armand Chavez. And he changed his name after he was expelled from medical school, so this guy is just a legit pathological liar who wanted to screw with as many people as he could. And that name is totally made up. Like, I looked it up. Hassenkoft is not a real, you know, historical last name. And um, Diazin is also not, like, a real used name. I guess any name can be a real name if you name your kid that. But he just picked, like, a totally fake made-up name. Such a scammer. And this was the man that poor girly Chu was involved with. Yeah, and it's sad because, you know, by all accounts, Gurley was a very simple, loving woman who had just fallen in love with an evil scammer, and she just wanted out. So when Gurley found all this out, she told her coworkers about this as well, and they were just as dumbfounded as she was. She also told them, as well as an FBI agent, 
that her husband threatened to kill her numerous times throughout their relationship and that if anything happened to her, they would need to investigate him. She was terrified of this guy because the threats he made to her weren't just like in the moment rage comments, they felt genuine. So genuine that Gurley began taking karate lessons so that she could learn self-defense. Because he would say things like he was going to kill her and no one would ever find her body. And he would say this with a smile. So this wasn't just like an, I want to kill you, which is also not okay, but these were more so plots. Yeah, it wasn't like a friendly, like, you know, goofy, like, oh man, I'm going to kill you kind of thing. It was like, I'm literally going to (laughs) fucking kill you. Which doesn't sound too friendly anyway. I mean, it doesn't, but... But yeah, no, I know what you mean though. It's like, these were really terrifying threats. And by February of 1999, Gurley was moving forward with divorce proceedings and got her own apartment in Albuquerque. Diazin wanted full custody of Dimitri, and although Gurley had been, you know, a mother to him for over two years and feared what his life would be like with Diazin in charge of his care, she reluctantly agreed. After moving out of she and Diazin's home, Gurley's car's windshield was smashed on two separate occasions while it sat in the lot at her work and she felt confident that it was done by Diazin both times, and that he wasn't done with her. In the summer of 1999, so a few months after Gurley moved out, Diazin visited the Triad Adoption Agency and explained to them that he was dying of leukemia, which again was not true, and that he needed to find a new home for his three-year-old son ASAP, despite the fact that he had demanded to keep Dimitri in his divorce with Gurley. The administrative director of the adoption agency, whose name is Vonda Cheshire, even saw Dyson cough up blood, which made his fake illness seem much more real. And at this time, she of course believed he was really sick. But before accepting Dimitri into the adoption agency, Vonda wanted to know more about the mother of the boy. And this is when she started getting a bit suspicious because Dyson's answer was that he had harvested eggs from a Japanese woman in Canada, took said eggs to a lab in the United States, created him and stored all the information about the creation on five gold discs which by the way this is literally impossible yeah for those who may not be sure the technology to create a real human baby in a lab is non-existent even today meaning it is especially or was especially non-existent in 1996 when dimitri was born so when the truth was discovered that dimitri was actually born in japan and came out of a real woman's body not a lab Dyson claimed that he convinced the mother to bring Dimitri to Mexico since he supposedly had a rare disease that only he, Dyson, understood. In late August of 1999, the process of putting Dimitri into the adoption agency was moving forward, and Gurley had to sign some paperwork since she had been Dimitri's guardian for the majority of his life. When the administrative director, Vonda, confirmed to Diazin that Gurley had indeed signed these papers, his response was, there'll be justice. Vonda was confused by this, just as she was confused and disturbed by Diazin in general. And she was worried that Diazin had kidnapped his child years prior, so she decided to call the FBI. But as the FBI was looking into Diazin, Gurley disappeared. As we mentioned, Gurley had been in contact with the FBI regarding her fear of Diazin, but the day before she disappeared, she contacted them again. She was extremely concerned about her safety and asked Special Agent John Shum if he could protect her. Despite the fact that Gurley had been previously abused by Diazin and he made numerous death threats towards her, Shum told her that there was nothing that he could do. The following day, on Thursday, September 9th, 1999, Gurley left her job at the Bank of America in the early evening. And after that, she was never seen again. The following morning, Gurley was expected to show up at her bank teller shift at 8 a.m. at the Bank of America location in Uptown Albuquerque, as she always did between Monday and Friday. Although it was Friday, Gurley hadn't requested off work and she was never late. Yet that morning, she didn't show. It had only been 10 minutes past the start of her shift, yet her coworkers were immediately alarmed. She always showed up before her shift and never after. And since they were aware of how afraid of her now ex-husband she was, they feared for her well-being. But a big reason they had this immediate concern 
was because just after 8 a.m., an unknown man called the bank and asked if they had seen Gurley. The man didn't give his name, but it was very suspicious to all of them that someone would call and ask this, especially since Gurley hadn't shown up yet. The vice president of this location named Kathy Samansky, who was in her late 40s, had become close with Gurley and knew all of her struggles with Diazin. So moments later when the phone rang again, she took the call. The man on the other line said, Has Gurley arrived at work this morning? As he continued to ask questions, Kathy wondered if it was Diazin on the other line. But she wasn't aware of what his voice sounded like as she had never met him or spoken to him. But then, Kathy heard a woman's voice in the background, and moments later, she grabbed the phone and said, Hello? This is Ernie Johnson. Kathy vaguely remembered that Gurley had a very close friend named Ernie Johnson, and they spoke every night on the phone. But the previous evening, Ernie hadn't heard from Gurley, and it really worried her. Hence why she called into the bank to check on her. After Kathy explained to Ernie that Gurley wasn't at work, they both knew that something terrible had happened to her. Kathy hung up and called Gurley's cell phone, as well as her home phone, but she received no answer. At just 8.10 a.m., a fellow teller named Jesse Grove offered to go over to Gurley's apartment to check on her. And Jesse's described to kind of be like a brother to Gurley since they worked together for a while. He was younger than her, but everyone said that he acted like her older brother, so he really cared a great deal about her. So, of course, he was extremely concerned and sped over to her apartment while Kathy called the police to report her missing. Since at this point, Gurley was only 15 minutes late to work, police didn't take this seriously and actually suggested Kathy call the non-emergency number. But Kathy knew something was wrong, and she didn't know how to calmly explain to the operator that they needed to send someone over to Gurley's home. So she went ahead and called the non-emergency line, hoping that they could help her but they really didn't understand the urgency either. Regardless, Kathy gave the operator Gurley's address, which no one, not even Gurley's closest friend Ernie, had at the time because Gurley was worried that somehow Dyson would find out where she lived. So the only person who had this address was Kathy, her employer. Well, actually, there was another person who knew where Gurley lived, and that was Jesse, because he had helped her move into her apartment earlier that year in January. That September morning, he arrived to her apartment at around 8.30 a.m. and noted her green 1995 BMW in the parking lot. Even taking note of the damage to the corner of her windshield after a recent vandalism that had occurred a couple weeks prior while she was working, as we touched on earlier, most likely Dyson. He also took note that there wasn't the typical club on Gurley's steering wheel, which she always kept locked into place. Paranoid that someone would steal her car, just about 35 feet from where Gurley's car was parked was the front door to her first floor apartment. It wasn't super out there in the open, but instead a bit tucked away near the back of the complex. This was great for privacy, so she could hide away, but it also made it harder for anyone to know if something bad had happened to her. Jesse rang Gurley's doorbell multiple times and knocked on the door as well, but to no avail. And after what seemed like forever since the first doorbell ring, he peered through the windows hoping to catch a glimpse of something, but he couldn't see a thing. So Jesse called his boss, Kathy, to explain his findings, or lack thereof, and after learning that she had called the police but they weren't actively working on making it over there, he informed her that he was going to go straight to the building manager and get inside Gurley's apartment. Like, they were not wasting any time here. Jesse was not messing around. Bill Orth, who managed the apartment complex, joined Jesse over to Gurley's door and tried to unlock the deadbolt. But that's when he realized it was already unlocked. This perplexed him because he knew Gurley was terrified of her ex-husband and always kept both the doorknob lock and the deadbolt lock secure and in place to be extra safe inside her home. So this was a big red flag. Within minutes, Jesse and Bill got the doorknob lock undone and entered Gurley's apartment. They didn't hear a single sound upon entering, but immediately noticed three stains on her orange crushed carpet throughout her home. And Mark Horner describes in his book September Sacrifice that the smallest spot on the carpet was the size of a grapefruit, while the largest was about the size of a basketball, in case you needed a visual. 
and it looked to Jesse as though someone had recently tried to clean that stain. Jesse called out Gurley's name, praying that she would just walk out of her bedroom in a sleepy haze, but she didn't. And in fact, when he walked into her bedroom, there wasn't anyone inside, just a neatly made bed, except for one pillow that was lopsided. They even checked Gurley's closet, but didn't find anything except for her neatly hung clothes. Nothing was messy in the apartment, and there were no signs of a struggle. And actually, you really would never assume anything bad had happened just by walking in there, aside from the questionable stains. Back at the bank, Kathy called the police again and explained to the police for a third time now that her employee, who was in an abusive marriage where a restraining order was filed, didn't come into work and that she wasn't in her apartment and something was wrong. She also mentioned the thing that Gurley always said, if I don't show up for work, please call someone. Something happened. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. rocketmoney.com slash going west. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Do you want to earn cash back while you shop? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out Rakuten, especially because this week, May 6th through May 13th, Rakuten is having their biggest cashback event of the year with 15% cashback at hundreds of stores. Rakuten is the shopping platform to use so that you can save big while you shop. They're partnered with over 3,500 stores across all categories 
including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and so many others. Some of our personal favorite participating stores are Ray-Ban, Hydro Flask, Clinique Online, and Verbo, just to name a few. There are so many big stores and brands that you're already buying from. But don't miss this major deal. It's a limited time only with eight days of these high cashback rates, so you can save more than usual. Membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you can get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. So after Kathy explained to the operator that Gurley always said that if she didn't show up for work, they needed to look into it, the operator dispatched an officer to Gurley's apartment to check. Jesse and Bill gave the officer more information, and with that, he was on his way without even stepping into Gurley's home. Another hour later, at about 10.30 a.m., police did a welfare check on Diazen, but really they were just seeing if he was home and if Gurley was with him. When they arrived, his front door was open and a woman holding a cleaning cloth came to the door, stating that she didn't speak English. As they peered inside, they noticed that Diazen's house was completely empty. No furniture, no decor, nothing at all. Well, that's not suspicious. I know. They questioned one of his neighbors to see if they had details, and he explained that he saw a moving crew taking all of Dyson's stuff away two days prior. Dyson was moving one state over to El Paso, Texas, apparently so he could gain easier access to a certain area of Mexico where he was getting treatments for the cancer he didn't have. The two officers at the scene got a sneaky suspicion after realizing that Dyson had skipped town, so they decided to once and for all, roughly two and a half hours after Kathy had originally called them, take a look inside Gurley's apartment. As soon as they did, they detected the smell of bleach. They also immediately noticed the reddish stains on the carpet, but also saw that nothing else looked out of place. There was a banana and a glass of water on her desk next to some incense, but they discovered that these were offerings left by Gurley to Quan Yin, the goddess of mercy. She had a very peaceful, simple, and traditional styled apartment, and liked to keep it this way since she finally had a place of her own. But inside of her apartment, police noticed that her purse and car keys were gone, which was quite suspicious since her car was still outside. And on top of that, despite it smelling so strongly of bleach inside of her apartment, there wasn't any bleach bottles around. However, the stains were still wet, meaning that someone had tried to clean them up very recently. The rest of that Friday and well into the night and very early morning hours of the following day was spent testing that apartment top to bottom for evidence, including the suspicious stains. It was quickly determined that the stains were indeed blood. So this deeply worried them that something bad had happened to Gurley. But what and where was she? The lead detective on the case, a man named Michael Fox, noticed on some adoption paperwork for Dyson's son the emergency contact of a woman named Linda Henning. He had been trying to contact her to see if she possibly knew anything, but she wasn't answering the phone. This worried him that she had been met with tragic fate as well, so he went to her Northeast Albuquerque home. When there was no answer at the door, he peered through the window and noticed a purse on the kitchen countertop. When he returned to her home later that evening, once again, there was no answer at the door. But this time, when he peeked through the window, the purse was gone. So, was Linda hiding from him? Luckily, the following day, police located 45-year-old Linda Henning, and she explained in an interview that she was Diazen's caretaker and that they only had a professional relationship. She also mentioned that she knew nothing about his ex-wife, nor that she was even missing. When investigators asked her how she and Diazen met, she explained that they both attended a UFO convention conducted by David Icke, a hardcore conspiracy theorist and former footballer and sports broadcaster from England, 
And there, Diazin told her how he was dying of leukemia, to which Linda explained that she could heal him through holistic medicine. Since Diazin was nowhere to be found to confirm this story, police just believed that Linda was nothing but a caretaker and sent her on her way. But they found it increasingly difficult to get in contact with her when further questions arose. Either way, shortly after this, police tracked Diazin's phone calls and found him in Charleston, South Carolina, where he had been staying with a woman named Cheryl Culp, a woman he was engaged to be married to. Knowing he had answers on Gurley's disappearance and potential death, he was extradited back to New Mexico for further questioning. And for anyone wondering how they were able to extradite him, Diazin made calls to his divorce attorney and adoption caseworker and one other person and threatened them all for talking to police. So investigators were able to charge him with making telephone threats, which meant they could hold him until they were potentially able to charge him with more serious crimes related to Gurley. And they knew Diazin had been behind this for many reasons, but also, after Gurley disappeared, investigators discovered that she had a safe deposit box with a copy of a three-page letter that Diazin kept in a forbidden room in their home while they were married. This is how Gurley found out about all the lies her husband had told, including how his name was fake and that he had abused many other women. And this letter confirmed every con that Diazin ever ran. So this opened up a whole massive can of worms for investigators. The day Gurley disappeared, a man was driving around 120 miles south of Albuquerque when he noticed what he thought was a blanket off to the side of the road. Realizing that it was dangerous to have it flailing in the wind as it was, he pulled over to take a look. And he noticed that it was actually a tarp, and alongside it was a woman's blouse, a pair of shorts, underwear, and some twisted pieces of duct tape and gauze. The eeriest part was that they were all stained with blood, and a piece of the duct tape had a few long strands of hair attached. Worried that something bad had happened to someone, he called the New Mexico State Police to take a look at it, and he collected the evidence to present to them. And that same morning, another man was driving in Albuquerque when he saw a wallet in the middle of the road. So he pulled over, waited for a safe time to run into the road and grab it, hoping that he could return it to the rightful owner. But all he saw inside was a foreign ID card with a photo of a nice young Asian woman named Gurley Chu Hossenkoft. Since the wallet was essentially empty, the man just put it in his car and carried on. But later, this would be used as evidence, along with the ever-important tarp and bloodied clothes. Because the hair the first man found would match to that of Gurley Chu, and so would the blood. But Gurley's DNA wasn't the only DNA in the belongings. Shockingly, it wasn't Diazin's. The other DNA belonged to Linda Henning, the woman who claimed to be Diazin's caretaker who knew nothing about Gurley Chu. Not only was Linda's DNA found on those belongings, but a pair of her underwear that were stained with her menstrual blood was found in Gurley's car. And her blood was amongst Gurley's blood in the carpet stains in Gurley's apartment. Regarding the stains in the apartment, there was also blood from an unidentified person. After confirming Linda's DNA on multiple sources of evidence, police executed a search warrant of her home where they found a Japanese ninja sword hidden in the garage's ceiling. And after comparing it to some receipts, it was confirmed to have been purchased by Diazin the same day that Gurley disappeared. Also found in Linda's Albuquerque home was a 22 Beretta handgun. At this point, detectives were confident that Linda was involved in whatever happened to Gurley and that she'd been lying about her relationship with Diazin. Linda Henning was born on October 10th, 1953 in Hollywood, California, and had become a model turned fashion designer in her 20s. But as the years passed on, she became very involved in conspiracy theories and everything unexplained. And in 1999, the year that Gurley disappeared, she met Diazin at the UFO convention that we had previously mentioned, but their relationship was far from professional. In fact, after she met Diazin, she broke up with her fiance and became engaged to Diazin almost immediately. And creepy enough, records show that Linda had banked at the same Bank of America location that Gurley worked at. And on at least one occasion, Gurley was her teller. So it really seemed like Linda had been plotting something with Diazin, especially since Diazin's saliva was found on Gurley's blouse. And it was enough to hold up in court. But police still didn't know what had happened. 
They just knew that they had done something to 36-year-old Gurley Chu. So on October 29, 1999, about a month and a half after Gurley's disappearance, police arrested Linda Henning for perjury. And then three weeks later, they indicted both Linda and Diazen Hossenkoft for the first-degree murder of Gurley Chu. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Both Diazen and Linda were very much into conspiracy theories. In fact, Linda believed that when they made love, Diazen would turn into a cat. Oh, right. Bunch of wackadoos. I don't I don't really know what that means, that he would turn into a cat while they were intimate. Like, does he cr- turn into a cat man or... I don't know. Like, like a cat with a human face? I don't know any details. That's all I know. So it seemed like they had other people in their little group, too, that had the same beliefs and views as them, including a man named Bill Miller. Bill was born on February 26, 1950 in Jamaica, New York, and he had also attended that UFO convention that Linda and Diazen met at. Bill Miller had studied to be a history teacher, but when that didn't prove to pay the bills, because sadly, teaching really doesn't, he began doing electrician work, but he also began committing crimes. At the age of 26 in 1976, Bill was arrested for grand larceny, though he was never convicted and he went back to teaching in Albuquerque. He eventually married another teacher and they moved into a home in a middle-class neighborhood where Bill would spend his weekends hunting elk with his friends. He was also known to be a trustworthy and kind man, but later reports suggest otherwise. Bill Miller got involved with the UFO club where they would discuss aliens, lizard people, cattle mutations, UFOs, and much more. Especially living in New Mexico, he believed that all its residents needed to be prepared for government takeover because of all of the state's military bases. Some sources explained that Bill Miller was creepy and that he didn't seem like the loving family man that others painted him as. In the summer of 1999, he spent a great deal of time with Diazen and Linda, so much so that they were described as a trio. Bill defended Diazen whenever anyone in the UFO club called him a fraud. The three of them got the idea to leave New Mexico, and Bill told the group that it was because of the supposed upcoming government takeover. But then he turned around and told his wife that he didn't like the neighbors or their barking dogs, and that's why he wanted to move. So it just kind of seems like he has two different personas. 
Yeah, and his wife really didn't see that conspiracy side of him, but he was a totally different person when he was at these conventions, in these meetings with these other people. Or hanging out with Linda and Dyson. Yeah, exactly. And then at home, he was this nice family man who was a history teacher. So it was like he was two different dudes. Very, very strange how people can do that. Well, Linda Henning brought up Bill Miller during an interview with police, and they wondered if he was also involved in whatever happened to Gurley. They issued a search warrant for his home and found dyed deer hair in his fishing tackle box. And those who were kind of in the dark about the dyed deer hair thing, I was too, but I guess it's used for fly fishing. So a normal thing to have in your tackle box. Knowing there were various forms of animal hair found on Gurley's clothes that were found on Highway 60, remember about 120 miles outside of Albuquerque, as well as in the living room carpet, which included cat, dog, and rabbit hair, as well as feathers and dyed deer hair, they had these hairs tested, and they were a match with the living room carpet sample. They ultimately arrested Bill Miller for tampering with evidence, kidnapping, and first-degree murder. As this was happening, Bill was acting very suspiciously and was visibly trembling. While he was being arrested, I mean. And once they had him back at the station, they witnessed him on camera in the holding cell, stuffing paper business cards into his mouth and eating them. So they had to stop him and try to figure out why he was. What the hell? It was like he was trying to hide something. So this guy was just acting really weird. And police were like, okay, something's up with this man. Yeah, that's really sketchy. And upon issuing another search warrant, police seized the following items from Bill's home. Ammunition magazines, duct tape, two black bags with ammo, maps, notebooks, a Smith & Wesson 38 Special, a 22 caliber Beretta, and 18 other weapons, including rifles, shotguns, bayonets, and more. And they also seized fiber samples from his home and car. So this guy had like an arsenal of weapons. And I know he was a hunter. I don't know shit about hunting. I don't know, you know, what guns you use for that or weapons you use. It just seems like a lot. I don't know. Well, it kind of seems like he was preparing for this government takeover that he was talking about. Yeah, that's what that's what people are thinking. And that's what police were thinking as well. So when they found this arsenal, they were like, oh, shit. On January 14th, 2002, Diazin, who had since been pleading not guilty and denied having any involvement in Gurley's case, walked into the courtroom and pleaded guilty to Gurley's murder as well as a dozen other crimes. To avoid the death penalty and instead be set to serve a life sentence in prison, he agreed to give a statement with all of the details of her murder as well. But then, days later, he told detectives, quote, I don't know any knowledge of the whereabouts of Gurley Hossenkoft. My statement is very clear. The detective replied with, I think you're lying to me. To which Dyson said, I don't care what you think. In a separate conversation with a different detective, Dyson boasted about what an idiot Bill Miller was, and that Bill's exact statement was that he was going to gut Gurley like a fish. But then, Dyson explained more. He set up the crime and discovered that no one worked security outside Gurley's apartment until 9pm. And by the way, I think we forgot to mention this earlier. Um, Gurley actually lived in a pretty secure apartment complex, and there was a security guard who was posted at the entrance of the complex all night long. So um, he knew that, and he was trying to kind of get around that. So he planned the kidnapping between 5.15 p.m. and 6 p.m., and he said that's when it occurred. And this would be right after Gurley would get home from work as well. However, The investigator noted that Gurley had called her phone company at 7.03 p.m. the night before she disappeared, or the night before she was last seen, really, because we don't know when she disappeared. But he just let Dyson keep talking. He then went on to basically describe a scenario where he committed the murder and Linda was not involved. But he was caught slipping and lying multiple times during this interview as investigators tried to match what he was saying to the evidence they already had. His story made no sense, so it really seemed as if he was trying to trick them into believing a false story, like the con man he really was. Once again, Dyson was sentenced to life in prison, and as sad and disgusting as it is, 
He laughed at the witness stand and said, quote, She knew she was going to be hunted like the dog she was. I only hope that she felt as much pain as humanly possible. Oh my god, this guy is an absolute monster. Is that not sickening? That's just, uh, no words. And especially just, just with you guys, what we've discussed about Gurley's background and who she was, she was so, so sweet and so peaceful. And to say something like that about an innocent human being who was just abused for years during her marriage and was just trying to live a safe and happy life, like this guy is one of the most evil people I have ever read about. He's at POS. And I, I want to I want to play a little clip of him talking so you can, oh God, this clip I'm going to play, he's like smiling the whole time, which he was doing, which you can only imagine how infuriating that was for you know, Gurley's family to see and hear about, like, and and just for everybody in the court to see that he's just laughing and smiling while he's talking about her and no and remorse shit that happened. Yeah, no remorse at all. Here's a little clip of him talking. But when you decide you're going to commit murder, you decide that you're going to trade your life for theirs. I did that. She knew that you were looking for her. And she knew she, she knew she was going to be hunted like the dog she was. I honestly just want to throat punch this guy. I know. He's, oh my God. Oh, we'll post the video so you can see his stupid face too. But wow, so, so infuriating. Yeah, definitely. And also at this guy's trial was one of Diazin's former girlfriends, Julie, who he was dating while still married to Gurley in the mid-90s. And she spoke and explained that he had conned her out of thousands of dollars. She also explained how she believed Diazin was abusing his son, Dimitri, and that she wanted to help him. So she continued to play along in their relationship to gain more information. Julie even told the court under oath that he had confided in her about his plan to have someone kill Gurley and that no one would find her body. Julie told Dyson that people go missing all the time and that the body is typically found, to which Dyson apparently responded with, not if they're dissected. And by the way, Dyson had abused so many other women and had also been married to other women before Gurley. Like, there is so much backstory and history attached to him and his cons, but there's just not enough time to discuss. So we're going to reference a book with all the information at the end of this episode. So later that year, Linda Henning's trial commenced on October 1st, 2002, and she was actually the first woman in New Mexico state history to face the death penalty. Prosecutors had an immense amount of DNA evidence putting Linda at the scene, although Diazin did try to vouch for her and say on the witness stand that he planted her blood at the scene. But again, with so much DNA found in so many different places, this really just didn't seem likely. Months later, on April 18th, 2003, Linda's sentencing was held, and the prosecutor presented an investigation report showing that Linda had made statements saying that she had consumed Girly Chew's flesh and that because of this, her body would never be found. Despite this horrific statement, Linda bypassed the death penalty and was sentenced to 73 years in prison. And although it's heavily believed that Bill Miller was equally as responsible for Girly's death, he received one year of probation for his role after pleading guilty to evidence tampering. And Dyson painted the picture that Bill was actually the sole attacker in this crime and that Linda wasn't involved at all. So it's hard to know what to believe, but it's safe to say you probably shouldn't believe a word out of Dyson's evil mouth. And I do want to add something that I wanted to mention earlier. The night before Gurley didn't show up for work, Dyson's neighbors reportedly saw him entering his driveway with black paint on his face and neck and sporting a camouflage shirt. And they did tell this to police, of course, at the time. And this is obviously very, very suspicious. As if he's maybe went to, had gone to a girlie's apartment and was trying to blend in and, and, you know, go unnoticed. I mean, that's kind of weird because you're wearing camouflage, but you're not in the wilderness, (laughs) you dumbass. (laughs) Like, what? That's so true. We know that Bill Miller and Linda Henning had made multiple trips to Magdalena, New Mexico, which is a small village before Gurley disappeared. And that's the same area where the tarp and the clothes with the DNA were found. So investigators believe that what's left of her remains is likely somewhere in that county. But to this day, Gurley Chu's remains 
have never been discovered, and no one has given a real confession as to what truly happened to her, nor why, that fateful day in September 1999. There's a book on this case that does a very deep dive into the story, and it's called September Sacrifice, written by Mark Horner. I did reference to it a few times throughout this episode, but if you'd like every single detail of this long-winded, wacky case, check out this amazing book. It's such a great read, and he really includes everything. Again, that's September Sacrifice, written by Mark Horner. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this wild episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and next week we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. This this episode actually wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be, and so I, I felt like I had to kind of wrap it up when I was doing the research. Um, but I probably could have included a little bit more. But I, I, I pretty much included like all the main details. But there's obviously so much more that goes into the story um, of the crime and of the evidence. So again, check out that book. And we got to say thank you to all of our patrons, all the people who became patrons this past week. Yes, thank you so much, everybody who joins Patreon. It really helps support our show. And we do bonus episodes on there that we wouldn't otherwise cover on Going West because they're often international. And they're ad-free and they're full length. We have well over 40 episodes right now for you to binge. So if you join at the top tier, you will get all of those episodes and two episodes a month every month. Or there's another tier, just the one below it. You get one a month and there's over 25 bonus episodes on that one. So go binge away. And thank you so much to everybody who has joined in the last week. Big thanks going out to Christopher, Stephanie, Clarissa, Erica, Castalia. Thank you so much. And big thanks going out to Nicole. Thank you so much to Marina, Karen, Ashley, Teresa, Michael, and Danny. And a big thanks going out to Anna Lynn, Chegster. Hey, Chegster. (laughs) Cassie, Elizabeth. And Daisy. Last but not least, thank you so much to Kira. I think it's Kira or Kyra. I think it's Kira. Thank you so much to Silvio, Kate, and Sarah. We appreciate every single one of you. It really helps support the show. It means a lot that you guys join the Going West gang. And for everybody else, it really just means the world when you share our show and help spread the good word of Going West. So don't forget to tell a friend. Or leave us a great review on Apple Podcasts. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world... Cheerio, and don't be a stranger.